everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Last Dance After Show podcast. My name is David Villar, and joining us, as always, is the man, the myth, the legend, Sam Fragoso. Sam, talk to me. Oh. What's going on? You know, it took us starting a podcast for you to introduce me like that. Yeah. I wish you were that kind to me before we started the show. To the listener, let it be known that that was dripping with sarcasm, <laughs> uh, that intro. Uh, drenched, saturated with sarcasm. So that's what's up. I'm glad to hear it, man. Your mustache game is is really strong right now, which is... Good to see. Game? I don't think there's any game. I think it's just at like a... I know in that I just don't think it's good enough to even have a game. I think it just exists as as an independent entity that lives on my face. <laughs> wow. Okay. Completely sentient. Wow. So you have a sentient facial hair that is currently residing on your upper lip. We could talk more about the mustache, but I think it's something we get into with our guest today. David, who do we have? We have the Pulitzer Prize winning critic at large for the New York Times, Wesley Morris, who is also a lifelong NBA fan and really was a great interview. I can't say enough about how much fun it was. I would say um, this episode, in contrast to others, probably a little less structured. I don't think there's any other show where we talk about Jordan and Adrian Lyne. Yeah. There's some heavy Adrian line talking here, which uh, <laughs> which many of you film geeks, cinephiles will will highly enjoy. The rest of you who are like, what's unfaithful? What's fatal attraction? I, I, don't, I just want to talk about Jordan and Pippin and Robin. Right. By the way, it should be mentioned that we mention in the pod um, that Wesley just wrote a fantastic piece for the New York Times, which can't recommend enough. It's uh, posted right now. It's entitled In the Last Dance, Michael Jordan and the Bulls Still Dominate. Highly recommend reading it. Wesley was formerly a writer at Grantland, the ESPN-operated uh, site founded by Bill Simmons. I think he has an especially unique perspective on Harvey Gant and how Jordan did become this kind of bought and sold commodity. So um, I'm really glad he came on. And uh, why don't we give him a call? Yep, let's do it. So, Wesley, um, I have only seen you without the mustache. I actually think it looks pretty solid. Thank you. What are your feelings about it right now? Uh, I am glad that I am getting it out of my system. It's something you felt like you had to do. I've been noticing that um, women like it and men don't. That's exactly what I'm at here. Yeah. I'm losing my audience. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm sure there is a gay man who will get a load of this thing and be like, oh, yeah. But by and large, it is not. I'm growing. My friend Brian and I are both doing this at the same time. And this is close. This is a lot like yours, Sam, except it's he's like a big guy. Yeah. And um he's got like it it's bringing up a lot of stuff. Um like trauma? No, not necessarily. Well, I don't know. What what's the opposite of trauma? Um it it, it is it's speaking my well, it's not exactly speaking my language. Anyway, he we've both grown these together and he went one direction and I went a different. Right, right. I'm going for 
what I would say is the common mustache, uh-huh. the mustache of of my of my race man elders, you know, um, your 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 SNCC <laughs> members and Ralph Ellison's and Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. not your zaddy mustache. Right. I did not think of Langston Hughes when I saw your face, but you know what? I'm glad you're bringing it up. Well, I'm about four shades darker than Langston Hughes, so that probably <laughs> probably helps. <laughs> Um, is that true? But yeah, I, I mean, my well, I'm not fully Langston Hughes yet. Mine, it has to be a like half is half as high. Uh-huh. I have to bring it up. Like I have to shrink it a little bit. I've had the same split as you though between men and women. Men, including David, have harassed me for it um, intermittently right. over the last year as I've shaved and then regrown it. The women, especially the woman I'm with. Loves it. Men can't stand it. So I don't know what to do. I don't there's know. There's a, there's a, I believe there's probably like a certain comfort maybe for women. Like this guy, you know, he's got a mustache. He's what's the comfort just like, you know, <laughs> mustached men are, are providers, you know, they're, they're, mm. They're just soulmates that you can bring home to mom. You didn't even believe that when you said that, but David, your dad had a mustache, correct? He did. So maybe that's why. I think that there is... How do you know that, Wesley? Because he told, told me him. while you were in the bathroom. <laughs> oh. Um, I was like, what? He's my archivist as well. <laughs> I think that... I don't know. I don't know. Wait a second. We have to know, though, is Michael Jordan's mustache throughout the years any inspiration for you? Is maybe this is your like, Mike? No, because he his was never as thick as the one I've got. Yeah. It was it's bad. I mean, um, Drexler had a great mustache. Yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. Who were the other great must? Uh, Larry Bird's was terrible. <laughs> Marbury. There's a blonde mustache is hard to do. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to be blonde with a mustache. It looks like something's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, just name name a great blonde mustache. Just name one. You can't do it. There's an actor, isn't there? There's got to be like an actor. There's all, I was going to say Robert. Did Robert Redford or Brad Pitt ever? He pull did, off? but but well, Pitt, Pitt's not a blonde. Pitt right. is Pitt is Pitt is a brunette mm-hmm. for our purposes. Um, <laughs> Robert Redford. I mean, when did he? He had one in the Sting, and it was probably okay. It was solid. It, no, no, no. I mean, in the NBA, Drexler. I mean, there's That's probably some other very obvious person that I'm. Not thinking of, but like the iconic mustache for me is is Clyde. Right. Clyde, by the way, gets dragged in this documentary. I mean, he's just totally steamrolled. Not as bad as I, I mean, I guess in theory it could have been worse. I, I think that one of the interesting things about this, about this show is that because it's so Jordan-centric and from Jordan's perspective, any shit talked about any other player without... A, a story behind it like isaiah isaiah thomas that seems legitimate to me yeah um yeah but then there are people who just kind of get run over because jordan yeah <laughs> you know um mm-hmm. i know a very high number of people watching this who don't know anything about the nba or professional basketball beyond like you know who some of the very very famous people are like they wouldn't know who clyde drexler even is mm-hmm so those people might be like, oh, I guess he I guess he wasn't that good. Right. But by and large, I think people can take a lot of the shit talking with a grain of salt, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with everything that Jordan does, any bit of bad behavior is justified because he wins. And I and I want to bring up uh, this quote here from your piece, which we just read. Um, 
in the New York Times. He wrote, Jordan's 15 seasons of brilliance, cunning, ruthlessness, volition, perfectionism, and artistry render him impervious to overstatement. He essentialized the sneaker as casual wear and luxury item. He made cause-free celebrity, cause-free black celebrity, no less, seem viable, preferable to having to mean all things to all people. One size had to fit all. Few team players had ever became as rock star, movie star famous, and would narrate a scandal the way that Jordan had, almost exclusively through athletic supremacy. There was basketball Jordan and Air Jordan. No athlete anywhere will ever have a mid-motion logo as triumphantly hieroglyphic as his, the silhouette as sentence. I'm glad to bring that up because we're talking about this for people watching on episodes five and six, Mm -hmm. where it is about Jordan becoming this brand. He's being, uh, you know, commercialized in this big, unprecedented way. What did you make of these two episodes here at that point? Uh, oh, wait, I just like went to my notebook to, to get my memory refreshed. Oh, good. Well, it's interesting because at this point, the show has stopped taking you into the lives. Uh, it stopped building the story of the team. Right. And these are the right. first, these are the first two um, cultural, because I think the sneaker episode is episode six, right? Yeah, it is. Yes. These are the Big two cultural. Episodes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's all kinds of other turns that they could take into thinking more broadly but um the 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 show rarely leaves jordan and it rarely leaves him to sort of make some larger cultural argument um about fame and celebrity and politics and you know there is a moment a friend of mine was expressing a little bit of frustration that there isn't a uh more robust attempt that we see anyway to get obama to say more about his personal disappointment in Jordan, but also his understanding of why Jordan didn't endorse Gantt in his 1990 Senate run. That's probably true. I just don't think that the that the show could have handled the way it's thinking about it, events in one era or one period and what bearing they're going to have on events in 97 and 98. Mm-hmm. I don't know. These are the two most interesting ones to me. I don't think they're the two best made. I think episode, which one is the, is the one that opens with Carmen Electra? That's four. Three, three ends with him about yeah, to go yeah, off to okay. vacation. And then it's the, does the little ticker thing, which is, I awesome mean, just playing, I don't want to be a player. <laughs> oh, the needle drops are amazing. I think that the questions that come up in episode five are, are really interesting to think about. And the, the idea that Jordan essentially got away with not really having to answer for them. And even that quote that's attributed to him that he says was made in jest about, you know, Republic, like when, when he is asked why he isn't going to support this, you know, this run against Jesse Helms, Jordan's legendary, sorry, let me say that again. His notorious response is um, Republicans buy sneakers too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, Jordan says that that's a joke. It was unjust. I don't know. It's amazing that he was able, that we know that he said that, you know, the other thing that this, that the, that the series makes points out also doesn't dwell too deeply on is that he did donate to the campaign, which does count for something. 
It just wasn't the public facing thing. I just don't know what really, what difference it would have made if Michael Jordan, like it's not a national election. Right. It's still a, it's still a North Carolina Senate campaign. We're talking about disenfranchisement now, but it was still happening in 1990. Nobody was saying anything. It wasn't a national issue the way it is now. For what it's worth, I mean, you can, I compare these two very cautiously, but I'm going to compare them nevertheless. Look at uh, Charles Barkley in the special election in Alabama. Apparently his, uh, you know, especially driving out uh, the African-American vote did did make some it's it's hard to quantify exactly, of course, but supposedly it did have some influence. So now it's a different time, different era. He was also Doug Jones was running against a pedophile. So, oh, by the way, there's that completely. (laughs) I mean, I mean, to be to be fair to your point, which is like like apt. Gant was running against yeah, yeah, Jesse Helms. They don't come more racist. I mean, I guess Jesse Helms is not officially maybe Strom Thurmond. We don't we don't know that he killed anybody. Mm-hmm. But you know, I feel like Harvey Gant kind of had his work cut out for him, running against a person in in Jesse Helms who just hated black people. If he didn't kill anybody, he got people killed. Oh, from your mouth to the devil's ears. Um, <laughs> but. It's interesting to bring up Barkley, right? Because Barkley is also the person who's famous for refusing the responsibility of role modelship. I'm not a role right? model. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, this was an era in which it was just not a thing that a professional athlete wanted, or like certain professional athletes wanted to have to deal with. And I kind of don't blame them. You don't blame them because you don't think they should have that responsibility? Well, let me put it this way. Let me let me rephrase it. It's not that I don't blame them. I just don't know why I remain torn about what I want to hear from people who aren't really up on the issues, right? So many painful press conferences, like post-match, post-game press conferences, where like some reporter just needs to get, for reasons I don't even know, these comments never make it into the finished sports stories, right? <laughs> Depending on what the mood of the nation is, Like, how do you feel about X, Y, Z hot button issue? Mm -hmm. And these people are not prepared to answer these questions because they don't know. And sometimes I can't be mad at a person who doesn't know things, who isn't out here speaking on things he doesn't know, who's asked a question about a thing he doesn't know anything about and then gives it. I just, I just know. (laughs) I think because for Jordan then to endorse Harvey Gantt, opens him to having to answer questions about all kinds of things. Okay, this is totally foolish what I'm about to do. But like, let's just hypothetically say that Harvey Gantt wasn't such a great guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he was, but let's just say he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then Jordan's then responsible for like Harvey Gantt's problem. It's just too much. And Jesse Helms had always been a problem. I don't know. I wonder, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, Jordan was in, also in Chicago. So it's not like I was going to make a really sort of easy comparison to a different time, but it was like Jordan was playing in Chicago when people were still dying. Right. Right. He just didn't want to go there. And I think he was so monomaniacal in his professionalism that everything else really was a distraction to him. I, I think I'm, this is me looking at his life and his choices. I don't know. I mean, he sort of addressed it a little bit in the, in the, in the show, but right. I don't know. But if we're to believe him, I think that is true. I mean, there is this article that I found 
from the Washington Post in 1992. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Bull Market by Jim Naughton. And one of these sentences here, about the seventh paragraph, it says, when he, he being Jordan, when he first entered the NBA, Michael Jordan said he wanted to be the best marketed player in the game. Mm-hmm. That's a 20-year-old. That's a 20-year-old knowing, I want to be a commodity that's going to be bought and sold. How many 20-year-olds know that they have that value? Well, they do now. (laughs) Yeah, but he's so ahead of his time in that way. Right, right. This is why I don't really have time for the, I was just kidding about the about the Republicans buy sneakers too. They do buy sneakers. And even in just that is such a, it's a comment that is, that stands in for a lot. It's a comment that, that speaks to brand maintenance at the very least. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I'd forgotten about his response to, to whether he was going to endorse. And the minute that it's brought up in, in the show, I just, I remember thinking like, oh yeah, I'm not shocked by that. That makes sense. I see that. I mean, coming from Michael Jordan, I see that. I don't think it, I condone it, but like, I, I understand it. It's funny because one of the things that I would have done in that moment as a filmmaker that I am not, I've never made anything. But I think that is the moment where you sort of invoke, I mean, the show is sort of not built for this. So it would have seemed random because it would have been one of the only places in which it did it. But if it were the kind of show that were 12 episodes mm-hmm. and each episode were maybe like 75 minutes instead of 40 something, that's the moment where you invoke people like, you know, LeBron and Arthur Ashe and Jami and Tom. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. I mean, you know, any number of people. I mean, I think you understand the the context in which he's not operating because you, like a lot of us know the stands that Kaepernick and LeBron, other people have taken. But, and it, you know, I mean, I got texts from people who don't know anything about Michael Jordan, but watched that episode on on on, on Sunday night. And we're just like, it just makes Kaepernick's choices seem so much stronger in in, right. in retrospect. Yeah, I uh, I don't think this is. It's going to sound like it, but this is not a huge criticism of Jason Hare who directed it. I just don't think the movie's all that combative, you know. And Ken Burns criticized uh, the film this week for basically existing in the way that it does, which it has Jordan's brand on it. And Jordan's approval of everything in it, um, or at least an oversight. I was kind of interested in a film that was going to be as combative as Jordan was as a player. To me, that would be the most interesting version. Because I do think he needs to be challenged. But I asked this question, I mean, again, I'm not a filmmaker. I don't know. Do you get a movie then? Do you get a show? I don't think you get a show. No. <laughs> and there is more in this thing that is not flattering to him. With all due respect to Ken Burns, like Ken Burns wouldn't have made, he doesn't make things about people. He makes things about concepts and ideas and events. He could do his own, you know, big book of basketball and have Jordan be a part of it and do a thing where Jordan's participation doesn't guarantee fellatio. <laughs> Hagiography. Yeah, it doesn't result in hagiography. But I find that this approach is fine and perfect. It's like way more interesting 
than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was, I really thought it was going to be 10 hours of just, you know, Jordan is the most amazing. And that's in there. Give me a break. Jordan was the most amazing. I mean, at least as a remotely perceptive viewer, like a, like a remotely critical viewer, you're able to see, I mean, it's compromised to the extent that Jordan apparently had something to do with its, with its production. But yeah, I, I mean, so. I don't know how much he had to do with its making. I don't know. Did he get final cut? I thought that like, I read something where he, he hadn't been given final cut or like he didn't, he did wound up not having, but I don't know. It doesn't matter to me because the thing that I watched is way more complicated and interesting. And even as a thing that's condoned by him, he is willing to talk about things that I didn't think he'd be willing to talk about. And the show spends a lot of time in areas that aren't pleasant or flattering. And he is present for all of it. He is here for, or he's there for the interrogation. Jason here could have been more combative, but I don't know if I really want to watch <laughs> like a filmmaker fight with the greatest basketball player of all time about, and about what, like right. how bad he was to, um, to some of the people he played with or like, well, like, no, like look, the front office. Look, I love the film. I say this on every podcast because I don't know if the guest always knows and David's going to laugh. I'm from Chicago. Take a drink. Take a drink. <laughs> it's a drinking game at this point. <laughs> I love him. I adore him. Again, I've only seen the first eight episodes. I don't know about nine and ten. I do think you're right. Maybe the gambling's none of our business. Maybe his stuff with his wife, you know, none of our business. To me, as a storyteller, I'm interested because that stuff only makes him more interesting and and more realized and full as a person on the screen. Sure, I hear that. Wait, David, what were you going to say? Well, what I was going to say is, you know, first off, Ken Burns in his criticism used the, and to be fair, he only watched the first four episodes. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. He also uses the word journalism. Like this is not good journalism, which I don't think this is ever claiming to be anything like that. Yeah. And at the same time too, you know, something else to keep in mind is that this was supposed to be aired on the off days of the NBA finals. And there's no way in hell the NBA or Jordan is going to, you know, basically portray their league in a in a dicey fashion in the off days while the crown jewel of their of of what they do, the NBA, they just weren't going to do it at the same time. I don't think they weren't going to, you know, it warts it all completely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this is not to let anybody off any hook. I just feel like the I feel like. I have a number of journalist friends who are also kind of mad at this movie or this this show. Not totally, but there's a major misgiving they have with it. And I hear that. I did not watch this thing in mind. I'm not overly sensitive to it, but I am sensitive to it. And I did not feel this was compromised um, in the ways that I was expecting it to be, I guess, is maybe the way to Yeah. Work. No, it's fair. I was listening to um, the Rewatchables podcast that you did on the... Uh, Ringer Network about do the right thing. And, oh, okay. And you, with Sean, and yes, it was just with Sean. Oh, it was just me it and was, Sean. Okay. Just you and Sean. And you, you guys were talking about, I believe, the David Denby review of, of uh, do the right thing and and reviews that that Spike uh, had. And you sardonically claimed and, and David Denby were the two yep, most crazy. Yep. You know, sardonically claimed uh, your favorite criticism of Spike Lee is that 
you know, they always included his success, right? About how much money he was making and what a cultural influence he was and stuff like that. What effect do you think Mars Blackman and the association with Nike and Jordan did for Spike and his films, both good or bad? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I think that Spike Lee made one of his very best movie before Michael Jordan won a championship. Yep. And that's do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the association between these two people, I mean, Spike Lee helped make Michael Jordan a God um, off the basketball court. And I think I, it's really interesting to consider what, what Jordan did for Spike Lee. I don't think Spike Lee lacked for, or currently lacks for confidence <laughs> and, um, <laughs> self-assurance swag he, he really loves that purple suit of yeah his. i'm actually surprised that spike is not in this in the show i don't know what if or there's a scheduling conflict he's really not here i mean maybe they're saving him for the end i don't know but he's not here kind of missed a little bit mm -hmm. and i wonder what the story is with that spike takes more risks as a filmmaker than a lot of directors do I think that he, I mean, I don't know what the relationship is between these two people. I don't think without Spike Lee, we get the Michael Jordan we, we, we've got. I mean, he still might be a great basketball player, but he wouldn't be an icon mm. um, the, way, the way he is. There's something about an, our awareness that Spike Lee is in many ways a fixture, is, you know, is one of the great NBA fixtures, like alongside Nicholson and Billy Crystal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Diane Cannon. Although those, all those people, two of those people are for the same team. What's Crystal's team? Is he a Knicks guy too? He's a Clippers. Clippers, okay. okay. Along with Penny Marshall. Yes. Oh, Penny Marshall. I'm going to think about that. But I definitely think that it kind of gave Spike Lee, I wonder how, whether Spike would say it helped him get Malcolm X made. I mean, it financially helped, but I wonder if the association also just sort of made it even hard, like that much harder for Warner Brothers to say no. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure on that. Um, when they were in post production on Malcolm X, they didn't have all the funding to finish the movie. And there's this story, God, and I hope I'm not misremembering, but there's a story he tells where he calls up a bunch of famous. Oh yeah, that's black people. that's super. I mean, finish the story, but yes. Well, so so he calls a bunch of people up, and he calls Magic Johnson up. And he's like, Magic, I need help. Can you help me out? And Magic Johnson gives him $50,000. And then he calls Jordan up. And Spike's like, hey, Mike, I just talked to Magic. He donated, you know, $50,000. You know, could you help me out? And he's like, great. I'll give you $51,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. I mean, the people who, who helped get that movie made, it's kind of, I don't, it's never happened in the history of movies, especially black movies, where you have... Those two guys, Oprah Winfrey, Tracy Chapman, Janet Jackson, the last credit, I believe, before the show enough you dig 40 acres on a mule stamp or sign or whatever, or icon, are the last words are thank Jesus for Aretha Franklin and Arrested Development, presumably for not charging them anything, for not charging Spike anything for the use of her song and Arrested Development's original song. Bill Cosby was another person who gave money. Like it, it was, it just was a, I remember that moment as being, and I was a kid being like, yes, yes, 
we got to go opening weekend or this will never happen. You know, it was one of the, it was just a magical thing. And, and Jordan was, was a part of that. What did it do for Spike? It made him even harder to live with. <laughs> you know, made him even more confident, more cantankerous and more like, more the kind of dunk oriented filmmaker that, that, that he already was. I was going to say really quickly, reading about the effect or the history of the relationship between these two and when they started out, you know, Wyden and Kennedy, who does a lot of the Nike ads still to this day, and who originally did that, you know, in some ways it almost seemed like a jumping off point for advertising and branding in general and the influence of filmmakers in the commercial space. And then eventually down the line, you get somebody like, uh, you know, David Fincher is doing commercials and then um, Michael Bay and stuff like that. Like, I wonder how much of that actually affected or was the, you know, genesis of, of filmmakers like that learning their trade, so to speak, in commercials. Well, I mean, Adrian Lyne, you know, those British guys, the Scott brothers, Tony and Ridley and, right. and Adrian Lyne, those guys made commercials. Um, I believe Fincher mm-hmm. was making commercials around this mm-hmm. time. Um yeah, I mean, there was a healthy relationship between, you know, commercials and commercial filmmaking. And I think with each one of those people, I think, you know, if I'm being honest, the shortcomings, this is the, all four of those people are really living and dying by their screenplays, right? Like what is, I mean, this is probably true for all movies, but there's a way in which, you know, a person like Fincher gets a gets a like perfectly average screenplay like Panic Room and can take take that script and turn it into something that could play at the Metropolitan Opera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Spike Lee is sort of the same way where, you know, he gets, I mean, he's at his best. His, I mean, this is, I don't know, I can't think of a filmmaker where I can say, well, the script's not great, but the film is a masterpiece, you know, mm-hmm. but... I think that that balance that struck between what how, what a great eye those guys have, um, especially in some ways Spike Lee, because I think he might be the most imaginative of those four people when it comes to like what he knows a camera can do um, and how he can use the camera as an interiority device. Um, just places that he and Ernest Dickerson thought to place the camera and, you know, eventually some of his other cinematographers like Matthew Lee and, oh Lord, the great guy, the second great guy after Ernest Dickerson just went out of my brain. Who is it? I can't remember. Uh, oh yeah. It'll, I'm embarrassed to say because he's one of our great cinematographers and his name just went out of my brain. I think that, you know, Spike has a great eye. He's got the best eye and the best instincts of a pile of filmmakers. I get really excited when he's working with somebody who can write. Um, sometimes that person is him. Kerwin De- Devonish? No, that's not him. Devonish. It's uh. Now we're on a hunt. By the way, we're we're a million miles away from Jordan. But then I just started thinking about how much I miss Adrian Lyne movies and his. Oh, that's uh, fair. Th- this is this is actually somewhat related to what I was going to ask you about. But he is of the class. Uh, an era of filmmaker. He gave an interview like three years ago. He never does interviews. Um, he hasn't made a movie, I think, since Unfaithful. No, he's got a movie coming out in the fall. Yes, he does. I know. I know. And but he said, 
yeah, you know, I just couldn't, I can't do the British accent, so I won't try. He was like, I can't make a movie, you know, my kind of film for less than, I don't know, 40, 50 million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm like, yeah, that's why you're not making movies because you didn't adapt to what was going to, you know, to what happened, which is you can't make that kind of movie. You can't make Unfaithful for $40 million. But that's what movies cost. Like on a, like, just like, just waking up, driving Diane Ladd, Diane Ladd, holy cow. (laughs) Driving Diane Lane to the set. I would love to see Diane Ladd. And that's good. uh, Yeah. That was a regular budget. I mean, it's a middle budget, but I mean, the middle was more than the middle in terms of how much, how many movies got made that cost like, I was, I did, I'm doing this um, monthly thing where I look at old box office top 10. Uh I think the next one I'm going to spend on how much movies cost and why, but the weekend I just did was from 2002, um, like the end of, of March, the end of April, 2002. And like every movie, like cost $40 million. Like high crimes was a $42 million movie. Murder by numbers, $42 million. Really? Yeah, I mean, for what? Like to have Ashley Judd like go to a courtroom six times? It's just cr- and to have Martin Morgan Freeman sit around this shabby office for a few scenes. It's just crazy where that money went. David has acted at a whole bunch of things, and I've directed a few music videos now. The money goes. Uh, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very little. It has very little to do with what you see in the frame. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. David, David, where'd the money go? The red vines don't, you know, red vines don't grow on trees, guys. Okay, craft service. You know, you need that. You need those triscuits on set now. Wesley, I know you have probably been asked this by everyone, but um, it's just something to think about as we enter what maybe hopefully will be the end of this quarantine, at least for now, at the, <laughs> at, at, at the end of May, at the end of May. It, it may be temporary. It may only be for a couple months. We'll see. You, you can you can pick apart that sentence, but um, no, you've jinxed it. But go on. <laughs> I have wood right here. You know this documentary, David and I have joked, has really served as therapy for most both of us, as basketball doesn't exist, and and going to the movies doesn't exist. I don't know. What do you make of this experience of watching this doc at home, and really what it means for? consuming new films, narrative and, and, and documentary. I hope that it trains people to want to actually watch the Krzysztof Kieslowski uh, <laughs> Decalogue. <laughs> I hope it trains people to not mind watching things that run for 10 hours. I mean, we should be used to it. We spend a lot of time binge watching things, but. I saw you reference that film in your, in the opening paragraph. And I just oh, yeah. imagine all the people reading at home. They're like, what? <laughs> well, this is not about Scotty Pippen and Mike. Who the fuck is this? Yeah. Well, hopefully they they clicked on the link. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a great question. I I think that this is a really interesting moment for nonfiction, like long form nonfiction. There's this show. There's uh, obviously Tiger King. Didn't watch it. Did you really not watch it? What? No, I really, I really didn't. No, it is good, but yeah. you know it. But I have more questions about that thing than I do about this thing. <laughs> Atlanta's missing and murdered children. Absolutely. I mean, not. which is not going to watch that. You're not going to because it's too upsetting. Yeah, no. Come on. 
I just it's great though. It's really good. <laughs> it's really well done. It's really well done. I'm sorry for shooting down these things. I've heard they're great. I just, you know, I'm trying to keep some mental stability over here. That's fair, but it's really good. Um, but it's a really interesting <laughs> moment for all of this this long nonfiction that is upon us. Um, that's new. Like I love event television, and this has become event television. Yeah. I would love to see more networks do things like this. Now, meanwhile, Ken Burns is like, yo, I do this once every three years and <laughs> you guys yawn. And it's true. Vietnam, which was the last Ken Burns joint, was really great. And I loved it. I mean, I mean, even mediocre Ken Burns is still fantastic to me because right. you're learning a lot. And what you're arguing with are, are choices that he makes and you know he's got blind spots and things that he likes to do um that drive me crazy but i love the ken burns experience on the other side i actually hope this thing gives us more and better sports movies Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know how that's gonna look but i'm real hungry for like can more convincing sports movies of which there has been i don't know i mean high flying bird i kind of like yeah that was interesting. Still haven't seen it. It had a, you know, it wanted to do something else. Give me a real good tennis movie. Mm-hmm. Give me like a real, I mean, baseball, I think is it has lent itself to the most great movies, boxing and baseball. But those are in some ways a little more straightforward and economic in how you shoot them. Like the action of it. Yeah. It, it, you, you can, can get have, away with a lot more. Shooting basketball is really hard. I really don't know how you do it cinematically. You just keep hiring the greatest actors to play the coaches. Right. And you right. just keep hiring Ray Allen or, you know, get the greatest actors to play the wash-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if you guys saw that Ben Affleck movie. I did not, know. No, I know of it though. How is it? It's good. It's called, what is it called? The The Way Back? The Accountant? Yep. Oh mm-hmm. no, okay. The Way Back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good, but the basketball in it is not terrible and he as as a as a wash up alcoholic he might be of who we've got left i mean he might be the best person to play a part like that well how do you mean a, a, a drunken washed up yeah happen? just like a, a real wrung out grizzled you know ben affleck never really i don't think wanted to be a movie star the further away he can get from having to look handsome uh-huh. and be sexy and can like channel all of that dislike into like not character work, but, but you know, something that's got a lot of rough edges around it for him to play. You didn't think he wanted to ever? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, he never brought it to the movie. Name one movie where Ben Affleck seemed to be enjoying himself. Oh, that, that's a different The Voyage question. of the Mimi. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I mean, well, th- when he went on Ben Ben uh, Ben Simmons, oh my God! When he went on Bill Simmons' show, that was the best televised Ben Affleck. That was great. But other than that, that was the best for both of them, for for Bill and for Ben. I thought they did a good job. They were great, but I I think that I mean Ben Affleck is a very good actor, and he's underrated as an actor. All I'm saying is, it's not. Th- I'm not saying that he's bad in movies. He's wonderful in movies. But the tension that kind of does make him wonderful is that he never really seems to want to be playing people who are enjoying themselves. Uh-huh. As opposed to Dennis Rodman in such <laughs> classics as Simon Says, Double Team. Uh, would you like to comment on 
on the worm's um, contributions to uh, cinematic history. People have been waiting for these comments, Wesley. Yeah, come on. I think he should be paying the movies. <laughs> it's funny, even in the series, it's like, Dennis, come on. Would you give me a break? <laughs> Show up. What are you doing? He's better in the old footage than he is yeah. in, in real time. I was just, I mean, but you know, you can't complain too much because you're just lucky to have him, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, this is not the time because I actually have to go in a second. Okay. I mean, the great athlete, you know, actors, they come from strange places. Dwayne Johnson, you knew as a professional wrestling watcher, you knew that guy had something. Right. Yeah. It's just, you knew, I mean, who's another, there just, there aren't that many, but who's another one? I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger came from the world of, of, you know, weightlifting. But again, those are sports wrestling and, 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 and bodybuilding where your job is to perform in a way that is sort of extra athletic. Right. right. I actually think somebody should ask Andy Roddick to act. Oh, <laughs> I feel like Andy Roddick might be, I mean, stop going for JJ Watt, who was, you know, no. You guys are picking the wrong people. I think Andy Roddick, he would have been great to try to get him to do it when he was playing. Right. But he's now, now he's just home. In my personal opinion, he gave the best post-game interviews, like press, press interviews I've ever seen. He was funny. He's still funny. I follow him on Twitter. He's funny. <laughs> and he's like connected and plugged into what is happening in the world. He doesn't live in a bubble. I mean- there's a periscope that that pokes out of it every once in a while. Try to like go for some unusual people who've got who actually have some personality and some charisma and a sense of humor. Last thing here. I would say Jordan does have charisma and personality. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, 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 um mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about big picture for you leaving this documentary and, and thinking about Jordan. What does MJ mean to you at this point in your life? Oh, that's a good question. Cause he, I wouldn't say that he did really. I mean, I mean, I can't even say that I took him for granted. I took him for what he was when he was doing it. He was evidently great. It's funny. Cause in that, in that Sonics final, I was, I was a huge Gary Payton fan oh, and you know, best. I wasn't ever rooting for the bulls. I mean, mm-hmm. I can remember spending a lot of time, keeping track with my best friend in college of um, the box scores. And when they were on that, that great run in like, was it 95, 96 or no, yeah. no, it was 95, 96. Was it 95, 96? The 96, 96, 97. 96, mm-hmm. 97. I can remember sitting in the cafeteria for breakfast for that entire season, just being like, Oh my God. Cause this is before, like, we didn't use the internet then the way we use it now. Just being like, Oh my God, they've still only lost four games. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> but when it came to like, I mean, I loved the Sonics. I loved them. They just had so much gumption and they, I mean, swagger. Yes. But like they were scrappy. There was never a finals where I was really rooting for the Bulls. I accepted that that their victory was was an all likelihood inevitable, but I mean the thing that the show does not really go into is like those a lot of those games were close, right? You know, some of them were squeakers. I just at some point just accept this is what it must be like to like be always rooting against a person like Serena Williams mm-hmm. or always be rooting against you know 
Djokovic, although I am kind of always rooting against Djokovic. But like you just at some point just have to accept inevitability. This is why my favorite tennis player on the men's side is Stan Wawrinka. Because Stan just might wake up one day and murder you. (laughs) (laughs) You just don't know. And it isn't. I mean, actually, you just don't know. It's more like Monfils or 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 Medvedev, Dan, Daniel Medvedev in tennis. But the thing about Stan is he is evidently great. He has won, you know, he's won three major tournaments. He'll probably he might win another one if we're ever allowed to play tennis again. But the thing that I love about him is he's not afraid of the great players. And watching the thing about watching this show is. You, it was just, it's so thrilling to watch people like Peyton and Drexler. Um, and and is it is it armed? Is it BJ mm-hmm. who has that monster game? Yeah, like with, with the Hornets. Yep, like watching these players not give a fuck and just right. being like, okay, well, so so what you gonna do? Yeah, and and Jordan just being like, well, n- now now y'all gonna make me act, act nasty. <laughs> You have driven me to the point where like, and he basically says this in the show. The thing that I don't like about the complaining about this series, about Jordan's participation in it, is like, this is not meant to be what Ken Burns would do. I mean, we've said this, but just to further make this point, like this this wants to be a Marvel movie. It does not want to be Shoah, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it wants to be the Avengers. I don't know if that's the highest compliment that I can pay, but it is a pretty high compliment in terms of its ambitions for itself. And it is thrilling to watch these dudes be like, yo, man, I thought I had him. I thought I had him. I thought I did. I thought I could do it. And Jordan being like, never once did I think they even had a chance. <laughs> and it isn't bullshit because the numbers back him up. Yeah. This, I, I just, I don't know. I accept this as a, as a series about greatness, not about Michael Jordan, the human being. I think it's more a show about what makes greatness possible. And I don't think like his marriages help tell that story. I mean, there are things that could have helped illustrate that, but I think everything you need to know about what makes an ingenious athlete great, all of that is in, there's not one thing in that, in this, in this, to answer that question that's not in this series. All that is there. And to your analogy, by the way, I, I didn't think about this until you said it, but, you know, with apology to trolls, I guess, without a movie going experience available to us, this has supplanted the Marvel movies, the Avengers as the summer blockbuster thus far. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but oh, they got to be astronomical. If people if the people in my life are texting me watching The Last Dance, the numbers must be huge because <laughs> numbers are huge. I don't need, I didn't even know this person how to spell basketball, let alone <laughs> let alone watch, you know, so far 6 hours of of a of a television show about it. Well, uh, Wesley Morris, thank you so much for helping us uh, unpack this. I hope you are staying safe and inside. I think keep the mustache. I think it's yeah, good. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely keep the mustache. Keep it, Wes. Yeah. All right, fine. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that. So long. Be safe. Our pleasure. Out of curiosity, Scotty Pippen's favorite Adrian Lyne movie would be? <laughs> oh, my God. The one with the with the deepest train rumbles. <laughs> I mean, that voice, geez, Louise. Quiet storm.
He's the quiet storm. Oh my lord. He's too, it's too much for the quiet storm. I mean, <laughs> the voice alone is making babies. Uh, thanks a lot. Look, all right. Sure, you guys. Stay safe. Yeah, you wear too. a mask. Wash your hands. Thank your frontline workers. Will do. <laughs> so long. And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to the last dance after show. If you'd like to learn more about Wesley Morris, you can follow him at Twitter at Wesley Morris. He's the co-host of a really wonderful podcast called Still Processing. And he's also the critic at large at the New York Times. Also, gang, uh, we are encouraging you to check out Feeding America. Uh, Feeding America is the nation's largest hunger relief organization. Through a network of 200 food banks and 60,000 food pantries and meal programs, they provide meals to more than 40 million people each year. School closures, job disruptions, lack of paid sick leave, and the coronavirus's disproportionate impact on adults aged 16 and older and low-income families are all contributing to the unprecedented demands on food banks across the country. Last month, Feeding America launched the COVID-19 Response Fund, a national food and fundraising effort to support people facing hunger and the food banks who help them. So again, if you can check out their website at www.feedingamerica.org and donate anything that you can, that'd be greatly appreciated, you guys. We'd also like to thank our wonderful editors, Meg Chen Soon and Melissa Zhuang. Without them, this show would not be possible. And speaking of this show, you can find The Last Dance After Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. We'll be back uh, Sunday night. Who do we have on? Oh, boy. We have the director of the documentary, The Last Dance, Jason Hare himself. We also have Dr. Todd Boyd, who is interviewed extensively in the documentary and who is a professor at USC and is commonly referred to as the Notorious PhD. So that should be awesome. Is he really? Yes. The Notorious PhD? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Check back here Sunday night for the new episode. Uh, if you have not listened to our back catalog, We've had on Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe, Sam Smith, who wrote The Jordan Rules, comedians like Daniel Van Kirk and Carl Tart, some comedians and friends of ours, Davey Rothbart and Brian Moses. You can find all of those wherever you do your listening. We'll see you back here on Sunday. We will see you back here on Sunday. Remember to stay safe. Try to stay at home as much as possible and wash your hands thoroughly. Take care, you guys.